Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. Um, so this talk is a chapter in a book I'm currently writing. Uh, it's a totally new project. But this particular uh, chapter is one that engages with some of my previous work on, on bureaucracy and documents. Uh, I should just tell you very briefly what the book is about. Uh, the book is an ethnographic exploration of how humans live in very close proximity to big cats that might be predatory. Uh, and this draws on work I've been doing in the Indian Himalaya for the last decade. An e-petition to Jacob Zuma protesting against the killing of Cecil the lion and asking for a ban on trophy hunting has gathered uh, over a million and a quarter signatures. The petitions that this paper studies constitute the polar opposite of this monster petition for a celebrity big cat. I examine here petitions that are asking for the killing of leopards or tigers in India. They tend to be written by either just an individual or a handful of people. None of them have ever reached the fame or the circulation of this petition for Cecil. I also don't look at e-petitions, just because I haven't yet come across any e-petition in the Indian Himalaya, where this research is based. But I do consider how new technologies are changing the modes through which citizens now make appeals to the state. Now, the core objective of this paper lies in examining those petitions that appeal for the capture or death of big cats, and which turned out to be efficacious. By efficacious, I do not mean that the demands were actually that were set out in the petition were met, but rather what I mean is that those appeals were given an audience, they were heard out and acted upon. My interest in efficacious petitions arises from broadly speaking two fronts. The first and foremost is that in fact most petitions in India are not efficacious. The normal course of action is for the majority, quite the opposite, they dismissed, they burnt, they lost, they filed away and forgotten, or they deliberately sat upon. And again, some of my previous work has looked at how uh, petitions and particular kinds of documents within the Indian bureaucracy are, are just sort of forgotten and deliberately vanished in many ways. Now, in the context of petitions, this studious ignoring arises partly due to the sheer volume and the dizzying diversity of petitions every wing of the state receives. So again, for instance, in some of my previous work, which looked at the implementation of India's largest um, welfare program um, uh, in, in rural India, um, I was amazed at how the whole process around uh, addressing grievances or petitions were completely ignored by the government. Um, the law actually enjoins the setting up of what is called a grievance redressal cell in modern developmentalist language. Um, and uh, these cells were initially set up when the welfare program started, but then the sort of the volume of the petitions and the grievances became so intense that all the areas in, in the part of India I work in, they actually shut down these cells. And, and their explanation for this was that uh, there's such a pathological level of petitioning in India that bureaucrats in the state doesn't have the capacity to deal with this. And so they effectively actually shut off that space in which uh, citizens could complain about the functioning of that welfare program. Now, so, so one of the reasons is just that you don't actually listen to petitions. That's something that you get rid of most of the times. But what further propels me to think about these petitions that have been efficacious in the specific context of big cats is that in contemporary India, it is extremely difficult, legally and bureaucratically speaking, to take any punitive action against big cats. From the late 1960s onwards, there were a series of wildlife conservationist legislations and measures that have been passed that served to provide a formidable level of protection for all wildlife. And this is particularly the case for tigers, leopards, and lions that feature in Schedule 1 of the Wildlife Protection Act of 1972 that serves to provide them with the strictest protection of all. And in fact, uh, there's a sort of a wider story to be written here about how Indian conservationism, especially the legal apparatus behind it, is uh, probably the most stringent uh, in the world. And again, 
especially when it comes to big cats. Now, there's a powerful wildlife conservationist lobby as well as a sort of an urban-based uh, middle class and upper class um, big cat lovers that very carefully guard these that these rules and guidelines are actually implemented. And uh, they're sort of keeping a very tight eye on um, the function of the state when it comes to big cats. Now, what this has really done is that it has made it extremely difficult for the state to, uh, to do anything um, to quite literally touch an animal, uh, a tiger or a lion or a leopard in India right now. Um, now, again, the only way in which the government can actually uh, capture or kill a big cat legally in India today is if you provide a very, very massive dossier of evidentiary proof against an individual named identified cat. Um, and this proof is normally very documentary in basis. I'm going to argue against that towards the second half of my paper. But basically what it does, what is central to this process of finding proof against a specific animal um, is the production of petitions. Because petitions then, if you have a whole bunch of them uh, by a series of frightened, angry um, citizens, becomes uh, the one sort of proof that is admissible that allows the state to legally take action against um, against a big cat. Now, there's a very long history, um, which I'm not going to talk about right now, to what is called a culture of petitioning in India. It's very specific to South Asia. It has a lot to do not just with the British colonial state and its own practices, its tribal practices and its forms of government, but also it goes back actually to Mughal times and a particular uh, literary culture which has existed in South Asia. Lots of historians have written about it, like Paul Yohannan, Robert Travers. I'm not going to go into that right now. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about its uh, contemporary manifestation and its ethnographic reality as a lived practice within in most parts of India. Um, so what you do see now in India are what uh, something like this. This is an example of what is called a janta ki darbar or a darbar, which is almost like a royal court with a certain where the citizens come and meet certain major officials in the state. So that over there is the chief minister of uh, the area I was working in, and that's the district magistrate of the district I worked in. And there was this one occasion where he came and he heard the grievances uh, of the citizens. And as again, as you can see, uh, maybe not very well in these images, um, this is in the form of particular letters that are sort of given to him, and uh, they're sort of filed away. There's a way in which the post-colonial state has institutionalized this practice of giving petitions. Now, again, what uh, is going to be sort of interesting in this paper from this ethnographic work is that all the petitions I'm talking about actually didn't come from these regularized, almost bureaucratized practices where there's a day in the month or a day in the week where citizens will come and present petitions. Rather, I'm going to talk about petitions, the, the only ones which are found to be efficacious in my fieldwork, uh, which sort of break with these regular procedures. Now, I want to argue in this paper that an ethnographic focus on efficacious modes of appeal expands the very notion of what constitutes a petition. Within the state bureaucracy and in the English language, petitions most often get described as letters, complaints, grievances, application, or just petition. The word most commonly used in Northern India in Hindi and Urdu to refer to petition is arzi. Arzi is a capacious term that includes requests, representation, appeal, demand, humble desire, and the presentation of information. There's a very dense assortment of meanings associated with arzi and its root word ars, particularly if one is attentive to arzi's usage in colloquial speech in Northern India. Most commonly, an arzi is a piece of paper on which one types or handwrites an appeal, but through the ethnographic material presented here, I will argue that this is not always the case. To make an arzi or to make a petition means to submit a petition, 
but it also encompasses a whole range of other actions around that act of submission. As the wider anthropology of claim making has shown, there is a need to be attentive to the various forms an appeal can take. Beyond the very medium of the petition, be it on paper or as I show below via smartphones, there's a need to capture those moments and utterances through which a petition is made, the forms it can take, and the types of follow-up actions that need to be or are undertaken in order to fully make a petition. A petition, then, is not just a thing, the petitionary message via a specific medium, but it is also a process. It is to such an understanding of petitions that this paper assumes uh, in its quest to understand how a chosen few petitions are heard of and even acquiesced to. Now, beyond an expanding out of the category of the petition itself, I also ask what happens when we bring the animal into the petitioning process. In the first place, we see a very strong questioning of the wildlife conservationist regime that comes across as not just too stringent in its rules and regulation, but also one that inexplicably ends up valuing big cat lives higher than human lives. Secondly, the animal com comes across as highly agentive, more so than the humans in fact. Animal studies has wrestled in different ways with the question of firstly whether animals have agency, and secondly, if yes, then how are we to access and describe such non-human agency? This paper, which is drawn from a wider book manuscript on human big cat relations in India, presents petitions and narratives that take the capacity of big cats to act and interact for granted. As petitions swing between the legal, rational, and affective visceral modalities, they produce strong imaginaries of the beast in question. He, for man-eaters, even when they are known to be female, uh, so man-eaters are big cats that eat humans, and the colloquially term man-eaters, um, and they're always described uh, with the male pronoun, so they're, they're always men, even, the, oh, even when you know specifically that it might be a female. Um, so these man-eaters are not just described physiologically as big or small, young or old, healthy or injured, and, possess and possessing particular markings. More importantly, he has a personality and possesses agency of a form that dwarfs the most agent of human. Thus, certain adjectives are used for the animals such as cunning, aberrant, vicious, scheming, powerful, dangerous, ill-mannered, batamese, uncouth, all-knowing, devout, and so on. In the petition and the speech that accompanies them, we are made aware of a presence that is eerie, but is also compelling. This feline presence is often anthropomorphized, but very often there is a non-human terminology evoked that individualizes the cat and allows for a peculiar beastly intimacy. Okay, so now onto the sort of ethnography. So most of this paper, in fact, all of this, this particular paper is drawn from my research in a North Indian state called Uttarakhand, which is primarily a Himalayan state. As I said, I did my PhD work there as well as my postdoc, my more recent postdoc work. Now, for various reasons that I'm not going to go into now, Uttarakhand has the highest levels of human leopard conflict, not just in India, but also in the world. Uttarakhand has a very, very long history of human big cat conflict, with the earliest uh, available records from the late 19th century showing that leopards were considered destructive, in the words of the colonial gazetteer. Um, other sources uh, that come, like, uh, so there's a lot of work which is there in the colonial reports, which give you statistics, which, again, we can discuss why they're problematic and not um, representative of what really happened. Um, but some of the most interesting source, uh, one of the most interesting sources from the 20th century comes from the writings of the hunter-turned-conservationist uh, Jim Corbett. Now, some of you might know of Corbett. He authored many best-selling books on his encounters with man-eating tigers and leopards between 1907 to 1938. He makes frequent uh, mentions of petitions written to him by villagers living under the, as he described it, reign of terror, man-eating tigers and leopards. So, for instance, 
Um, this is a petition that was published in Corbett's very famous book called Maneaters of Kumau in 1944. In this, uh, the, the villagers beseech Corbett, misspelled as Corbett in the petition, to come and rescue the villagers from a tiger that was subsequently named the Mohan Maneater. This petition was originally written in Hindi, but it was translated into English either by Corbett himself or by Oxford University Press, the publishers of Maneaters of Kumau. Um, now, this is a very good example of what is termed a humble petition uh, due to the extremely deferential language it utilizes and the faith it reposes in the benevolence of Corbett. Now, this is very much in stark contrast to the kind of petitions I have encountered in present-day Uttarakhand, which completely break from this mold of beseeching and humbly requesting, even if they don't entirely abandon some of their elements, especially the expression of faith in the ultimate benevolence of the state. Now, I want to compare and contrast the petition to Corbett with the petition that was submitted in December 2007 requesting the killing of a man-eater. Now, this was during my PhD work, uh, which I live for a year in this district called Chamoli on India's border with Tibet. Um, and Chamoli has a very high level of human leopard conflict. Um, in December 2007, um, this particular uh, petition, which only some of you, I think, can read this, but um, was submitted to the district magistrate in Chamoli district. Um, and uh, so basically on the 21st of December 2007, a group of over 100 people took out a procession, what's called a jalous, under the banner of Chamoli district's residence forum. Amidst the beating of drums and cries of Uttarakhand Shasan Hai Hai, or shame on Uttarakhand administration, and debt to the DM, District Magistrate Murzabad, the procession met, met the District Magistrate to give him this particular petition. For the past six weeks, a man-eater had been haunting the town uh, that is also the administrative headquarters of the district, and this town is called Gopeshwar. Over a dozen attacks had already taken place, and thus far there were three confirmed human deaths. Now, despite the obvious presence of a man-eater in the town, the district officials had been unable to officially declare the big cat a man-eater, and consequently to obtain a hunting permit that would allow for him to be legally killed. The DM accepted the letter, the district magistrate, uh, who's the top bureaucrat in the district, accepted the letter and made a short speech in which he claimed that he was doing all that was possible uh, to regulate the leopard. Now, all petitions in Uttarakhand that have been written, written in the Hindi language, and all, barring one, uh, demanded the death for the leopard. Um, the subject line so for this one reads in bold and in a very large font size, the terror of the man-eating big cat in Gopeshwar, uh, district Chamoli. It begins with reference to the spread of the terror in different districts of this region, one that is regularly reported in local newspapers, yet, I'm quoting from the petition, yet the central government, Uttarakhand government and the district administration do not regard it gravely. The state has today put the worth of the big cat greater than the worth of humans. Is there no value left to humans in Indian democracy today? End of quote. Now, the letter goes on to list a series of recent attacks by the leopard, with a stress on the manner in which, in broad daylight, the increasingly fearless leopard was barging into houses and grabbing children and attacking women. Now, again, quoting from the petition, after the experiencing of these incredible incidents too, our sarkar, our government, our state, remains mute. The people are frightened, they're terrorized, and our state is sleeping a peaceful sleep. End of uh, quote. Now, the letter set out four demands to the Chief Minister, including amendments to the Wildlife Protection Act and the provisioning of better compensation for victims. It was signed by over a um, dozen eminent citizens of Chamoli of the district, including social workers and conveners of particular associations such as the Himalaya Peace Foundation, um, the resident um, retired soldiers welfare organization, 
the Municipal Corporation and um, the Women's Forum. Interestingly, it was addressed to the Chief Minister and not to the District Magistrate, so to the bureaucrat that they actually handed the letter over to, or to the forest officer who was also, who is more directly responsible for the leopard in this region. Um, there was a certain person called Mr. Rawat, who is the chief drafter of this petition, and he said that basically, um, he said to me that they were just totally tired of waiting for the state to act, and they knew that the only way to exert pressure on the district authorities is by going over the head to the big boss, so to the Chief Minister. They'd also got the petition hand-delivered to the CM and to the chief minister in the distant state capital. But the chief line of attack had been to personally assemble a large number of people, hire the drums and march through the town shouting slogans. They'd also made sure to check that the district magistrate was in the office that day as they wanted to personally hand over the petition to him so that later on he could not pretend that the file never reached him. Indeed, one of the defi defining features of a petition is that it is delivered by hand. You don't just post it in the mail, but you make sure to hand it over yourself to the highest possible official. Now, this Mr. Rawat, who's the chief uh, writer of this petition, and the other signatories put great emphasis on the affective charge of the moment in which he and his fellow petitioners confronted the district magistrate in person in front of his office and the assembled crowd of onlookers and presented him with this letter and related their fear and anger to him. The procession had also roped in some influential members of the local press who stood by with their cameras. Next morning, I saw pictures in almost all the local Hindi language newspapers of the procession head handing over the petition to a somewhat beleaguered-looking district magistrate. The petition and the press coverage around it, uh, you know, which were sort of photocopied and cut, uh, cuttings of the press coverage um, were filed and kept and actually then sent to the state capital, they gave the district magistrate the space to press home his demand for a hunting permit uh, for that particular leopard. Um, and there were, again, series of petitions which came in, series of uh, very problematic photographs of victims um, and lots of other sorts of documentary evidence uh, are similar in nature to this particular petition, though this was the main moment uh, at which, as the district magistrate put him, there was a victory uh, for the state versus the leopard. This was the moment that actually allowed them to make a case against that particular leopard and uh, ask for a hunting permit. A recurrent theme in petitions in the Himalaya that one can find buried in district archives are musings on the value of human life. Members of this particular procession kept repeating the sentence that appears prominently in this petition. Is there no value left of, to human life in Indian democracy? Can it be that the Indian state values the life of a big cat more than a human? Who is bigger, cat or human? Another petition said, you're my mother, father. This is a term that's used to describe the state, my bab, um, quite often in India. Yet you value the big cat more than my child. Another said, it would be brave to kill the man-eater. The bravery doesn't lie in protecting it. It is us humans who need protection from this wild beast. Or is it that you are a coward? Now, there's a very highly personalized mode of addressing the state as an individual, um, which again, we can talk about. Yet another petition read, but what idiocy is this from you, my lord, who knows so much? It, uh, the cat, is but the aunt of a cat, and I am a human. Uh, so there's a particular um, phrase in which you say that a tiger or a leopard is the aunt of a small cat, Billy Kimosi, and this is a phrase that is often used in Hindi to say, look, this animal is really not as powerful or as charismatic as you think it is. It's nothing but the aunt of a little cat. Um, now, what is striking in the petition sent to Jim Corbett in 1933, in contrast to the petition submitted to the Chief Minister of Uttarakhand in 2007, is the assessment of what the state is doing to alleviate the terror of the man-eater. 
In the case of the Mohan Maniter, so that's the Maniter that Corbett was trying to hunt down, the villagers write that the district magistrate, the gentleman shikari, the gentleman hunter, and they addressed him as a gentleman hunter, and the forest officers are doing everything they possibly can. Unfortunately, they don't seem to have had much success, and given Corbett's fame in Uttarakhand, the villagers were writing in to request him to kill the enemy, the tiger. In the case of the man-eater of 2007, the petitioners are absolutely furious with the state for doing nothing and for sleeping a peaceful sleep while the people are terrified. There's a constant reference to the sorry state of democracy in which the big cat appears to be valued more than a human. The 1933 petition is cajoling and respectful. The 2007 petition is angry and makes demands well in addition to the mere hunting down of a man-eater. Though both were petitioning for the same cause, the hunting down of a man-eating big cat, the rhetoric employed in both the letters is remarkably different. The wordings of the petitions, particularly with the veiled or even open threats some carry in them to wage a revolt against the state, carries import. It allows local officials to use the fear of a breakdown in law and order and speed up the process of getting the cat, the aberrant cat killed or captured. Note also that there is this um, constant comparison between human and animal life, which I, I'll talk more about in a bit. Now, the anthropocentric assumptions would be that humans are valued above animals, at least by fellow humans. But what the petitions bear in the district archive all over Uttarakhand keep dis discussing is a species betrayal, one wherein big cat life is valued much higher than human life. And this idea of uh, comparing these species is something that sort of keeps coming up all the time in the petitions, but also when you actually talk to the petitioners. Um, but the rhetoric of the petitions aside, it is also the accompanying performances that makes a big difference to the eventual acceptance or denial of demands. So this petition in 2007 was actually remarkably successful, partly due to all the sort of the whole procedure and uh, that was strung around it. Um, so one of the arguments I really want to make from this, uh, from the wider material on this, is that in addition to careful wording and the public spectacle at the point of submission, a key tactic of petitioning the Indian state involves the following up of the original petition with further forms of pressure. The phrase that is most commonly used to describe this follow-up action is called chakkar marna, or to go round and round. One would describe the circumambulation of a temple in Hindi as chakkar marna, but when used in the context of government offices, it is meant to exude that sense of exasperation as well as an ensuing dizziness. Chakkar marna, going round and round, can and often does include follow-up petitions by the same supplicant or new ones for the same cause. Now, there's an interesting trend which has actually only um, arisen in the last three or four years during my fieldwork in the Himalaya of what I think of as piggyback petitions or petitions that ride on the original appeal or the original grouse but also slip in an extra demand or two. So, for instance, um, villagers of residents of a town uh, where I was doing fieldwork They'll send out a petition saying that we actually want the death of this particular leopard or this tiger. Um, the local political representatives, uh, members of two leading political parties, the Congress Party and the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, will often follow up with petitions requesting the very same thing. Uh, and they do so on their letterheads with the symbol of the party stamped on them. What becomes part of these petitions are not just the need for death or capture of the cat or a greater alertness on the part of forest and police staff, but also these petitions start including requests for things like electrification, clearance of shrubs from roads, the construction of pakka roads, of permanent roads. Um, and they suddenly sort of add on lots of things to the original demand. Now, piggyback petitions aside, follow-up action on petitions expands above and beyond a written document. 
that might indeed have formed the original arzi or the original petition the idea of going round and round highlights the processual nature of petition it is in other words not just a thing a petition or arzi that you submit once but in fact it is a series of steps taken in the valiant hope of getting your appeal heard now in the case of hunting down maniters when petitions such as the one just described proved to be ineffective for whatever reason um the district was unable to you know find a hunter they were unable to get a hunting license uh, the hunter was unable to kill the right leopard that killed the wrong leopard or you know they just couldn't kill any leopard because they're actually very difficult to hunt down um which is a whole different chapter uh, hunting them down um what would happen was would be that the agitations would gradually increase and the situation would arise whereby one would dispel altogether with pieces of paper or these letters that that veer between humble requests and outright threats to the adoption of other methods for greater pressure on the state the most common of these methods is the staging of what is called a dharna and the sitting and sitting on the body of a victim so that's not actually a dharna for um for maniters it's basically just an example of what it looks like what that means is that um people will come and sit around will just come and stay in a particular space often in important places like in front of a bureaucrat's office or they will jam certain roads uh, so that people can't pass through it uh, until the appeal is heard in the context of maniters what happens uh, in the himalaya is that they actually don't let the body of the victim who is half eaten by a leopard or a tiger the body is sort of rotting and in a very like it's a absolutely appalling uh, horrifying uh, thing to behold they sit around it and they don't allow anybody to uh, they don't allow the state actually or the family to cremate the the person because they say till that leopard or tiger's hunted down we will not allow this body to be moved now in my experience this has occurred twice and the situation in both cases was sort of similar a number of humans had been killed by a leopard um patently these were not accidental deaths but in fact there was a maniter at work a petition or a series of petitions had been submitted uh, follow up petitions had been submitted phone calls had been made telegrams had been sent newspaper articles had been published but to no avail inside there were basically these bureaucrats were not able to win a hunting permit or they were not able to procure a hunter or find a gun i mean there's something or the other that went wrong in these cases now um what happened in both the cases uh, was that the family and other villagers of the town's people came and they sat around the victim's rapidly decomposing body and chanted slogans against the state very similar slogans to the ones that uh, came out in the processions that come to submit the petitions so this will be dead to the district magistrate down with the state dead to the prime minister etc um both those demonstrations i saw took place in key spaces of the town the first at the entrance of a bazaar and on a major road the other right outside the forest department's headquarters and on both these occasions the pressure on local officials to quickly hunt down the leopard any leopard it didn't matter which one and present it to the victim's family in particular becomes absolutely extreme it also allows these officials to ring up the superiors in the capital often in new delhi actually just to beg for reinforcements uh, be it extra policemen uh, to maintain law and order as they say or hunters or both as the situation might uh, get a bit out of hand now administrative letters and official accounts in india appear to be perpetually in fear of unlawful and disorderly behavior this discourse is mimicked in official letters in uttarakhand despite the fact that it has rarely if ever occurred in the mountains uh, of uttarakhand the only experience of this constantly anticipated brute behavior in the last 10 years at least uh, took place in the district of chamoli about uh, which is where i've been working and this happened about 2 years back now within this particular district there's a region which has extremely high levels of human pick cat conflict uh, for reasons that 
remain unclear. Nobody understands why that particular area in the state has such a high level of conflict. Uh, and that's sort of part of this book was actually spurred by an interest in understanding why some places suffer so much and others don't. Uh, and they'll be right next to each other. So it's not as if they're very far away. But in any case, this area, um, there was absolutely nobody. Uh, the, 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 apparently, there were three man-eaters uh, at work at the same time. There were several deaths, most of them not accounted for. Most of them never made it to official files, etc. Um, and one of the reasons I've argued in my earlier work as well as now is because you don't actually have people putting in petitions, but you also don't have state officials doing the documentary work required to actually make this death or the presence of the man-eater a real thing. So this is the kind of notes you'd get from there where the person has just listed, um, you know, this happened and there was a death. This happened and there was a, a attack. This one was grievously injured, um, but they don't actually do anything more than that. And even these, they just come handwritten like that and you know they're thrown into the dustbin pretty much. Um, now, this particular incident uh, was uh, which uh, in the same region, which happened, uh, was absolutely fascinating because. They were not, these petitions were not working, nothing was really happening. Um, and there was a dharna, a procession which sat around the body of this victim for a long time. And in the end, the, the state had to, you know, forcibly, they had to actually had to get police in and forcibly pick up the body and cremate it because it was also becoming a public health hazard, not just a public law and order hazard. Um, and But what they did in return for that is that they hunted down two leopards without getting licenses, without officially getting licenses. And then they paraded the leopards around town to pacify the people. Now, this this act where sometimes um, the state will just kill any leopard without ascertaining whether it is the man-eater or not. So one of the chapters in this book is actually about trying to figure out how you identify an animal. Like, how do you identify a specific tiger or a specific leopard as the man-eater? And my argument, actually, in short, in that chapter is that you never can. You actually never know whether you've killed the right, uh, the right animal or not. But in this case, you actually make no effort. You literally kill the first leopard you see, and then you sort of literally, quite literally, as you can see in this case, present the corpse of the animal and say, this is a sacrifice we've done of a leopard. Just don't tell anyone. And this is all between, uh, between us. But again, it's a public secret uh, in the sense that we all know what happened. Now, but I want to argue that yes, in the last 10 years, there have been two cases such as this, uh, where there was uh, this, the pressure became so intense, and the whole petitioning process and the hunting license process collapsed completely, and they had to just kill uh, these whichever animal they found. Um, but I actually want to argue that this is actually a very rare occurrence, where it is a threat of force uh, that appeals. Um, it is the threat of force that makes an appeal to kill a big cat uh, valid. Um, as the next petition that I'm going to discuss now shows, there are mediums and there are moments that can unleash a very visceral response and culminate in very quick state action. Now I'm thinking of these petitions as WhatsApp petitions or WhatsApp arzis, uh, because this is again, there's a whole new way in which uh, smartphones and new technologies are entering the domain of everyday governance in the Himalaya right now. And this is, um, this is, an, this is a very interesting, in my, to my mind, example of what that is doing. So about a year back, when I was living in a large town in Uttarakhand, I woke up to find a WhatsApp message on my phone. The message in Hindi simply said, we want justice, hame insaf chahiye. Accompanying the message was a photograph of a young boy called Krishna, who had become the latest victim of a leopard in a village just adjoining the town I was living in. A particularly enterprising young man in this village had come up with the idea to WhatsApp that image out to everyone. Uh, so everybody, literally everybody in this town, 
um, but also to state officials, to villagers, etc. And everyone now has smartphones and everyone has WhatsApp. Uh, as if any of you heard from Marcus's paper, he was also talking about um, the importance of WhatsApp in India now and how that's becoming a primary mode of communicating. The simple but powerful text and its accompanying photograph of a half-eaten-up child circulated furiously in the town and even further. It was sent as a mass message to dozens of people, including senior wildlife and administrative officials. The next day, some of the local newspapers carried it too with the headlines such as, another innocent has been martyred to the protection of leopards and tigers. Another newspaper said, but what was his fault? Now, I'm going to show you this image, um, uh, and I should just say it's a very disturbing image. Um, and so if you don't want to see it, please look away. The only reason I'm showing it is one that it's publicly available uh, in newspapers and WhatsApp images and it's in the public domain. But the other reason I'm showing it is um, that when I went to interview the parents of this child much later, they said to me uh, that I should actually come out and show, when they got to know I live in England, that I should come and show these images to people such as us because uh, they said then maybe they will see what these beautiful animals are capable of doing. Um, and how um, you know we shouldn't just be thinking about protecting them, but we should also think about protecting um, humans. So, and again, an another reason I'm showing it more selfishly is because part of the, the project in this wider book manuscript is to ask, can we think about big cats outside this idea of charisma and conservationism and beauty? Can we think of them beyond, outside that prism? And uh, I think this image shows one way in which we could do that. So this is Krishna, and this image sort of went round and round uh, like crazy. Now, this image was also sent to concerned forest officials who issued a hunting permit via SMS, so again, um, using his mobile phone, to three of the state's most accomplished hunters the very same day. Um, these hunters who are like the best known hunters in the whole state, they were rushed into the city, and in a few days' time, the leopard was hunted down. In normal circumstances, the killing of every leopard and tiger in a big town becomes magnified in the local press with animal rights activists, wildlife organizations, and other assorted big cat lovers leaping to the defense of the dead feline. In this case, though, the speed with which the big cat was hunted down and the widespread dissemination of the photograph, with its very simple demand for justice, led to a complete hushing up of the event. Furthermore, there is absolutely no paper trace left of the death of this leopard in the official accounts. The arzi or the petition was nothing but a WhatsApp message that wasn't filed. The hunting permit was just an SMS message that is equally unfileable and actually totally unofficial as well, in a way that documents are not. Um, a lot of the discussions took place off the register. So it all happened on the telephone. So there was such a visceral response that the forest officer just called up these hunters and said, come and kill that damn leopard now. Um, now, at the moment, there's a heated discussion ongoing in India on the extent to which new technologies such as SMS or WhatsApp messages can you be used in lieu of the regular paper-based technologies. Now, while it is too early to see what these new technologies lead to and how they shape the form of government in India, I think it's just worth making one initial ethnographic observation on the basis of this particular uh, WhatsApp message. The paper state that formed the basis of colonial rule and continued into post-colonial South Asia has, I've argued in my, in my previous work in, in my book, Paper Tiger, only been strengthened by the recent push to transparency and accountability or the so-called good governance agenda in India. In an ecosystem in which we're witnessing the profusion of paper-based forms of functioning and evidence-making in government offices, SMSs and WhatsApp messages, such as the one I just described, possess some noteworthy qualities. The first is the sheer brevity of the message and yet its, yet its power. 
unlike the three-page petition that Big Cat's, um, you know, action uh, that detail the Big Cat's awful actions and set out bullet-pointed demands, we have with these WhatsApp messages very short and punchy messages. The sheer simplicity for the demand for justice, which is what often lies at the very heart of all petitions, is presented as just that, a demand for justice. No details, no remonstrations, not even specific demands beyond insaf, beyond justice. The power of the message is often propped up with the photograph. Together, they make for an extremely potent petition. I would often observe in my more recent work uh, during my time in government offices, how bureaucrats, especially uh, the senior ones who felt absolutely overwhelmed with, with petitions, as I described at the beginning of the paper, never really read what was given to them seriously. They would skim it briefly or even just ask the personal assistant, uh, what was this about before they toss it into a file or um, you know, or just mark it off to someone else or sometimes just rip it to shreds. Going through the archives in different districts uh, of the Himalaya and in Uttarakhand in the state I work in, I saw scores and scores of petitions demanding the capture or hunting of man-eaters or begging for compensation for attacks and kills. Many of these petitions, I was absolutely certain, had never even been read by officials that they were addressed to. As I mentioned at the outset, there's a similar fatigue with the volume of petitions in the development wings of the state. In such an environment of pathological petitioning and dizzying volume of paper, what I think of as the WhatsApp RZ or the WhatsApp petition has the capacity to elicit not just a response, but also a very quick response. Now, the second aspect of the petition through WhatsApp or SMS is the speed. This is so for both the writing process and the time it takes to evoke a response. So in the case of the Gopeshwar petition, the first uh, one I mentioned from December 2007, it was after three kills, several attacks, several weeks that the petition was penned. Uh, while there was only one enterprising person, the Mr. Rawat I mentioned, who wrote it up under the banner of a large organization, that petition circulated among several persons for the signatures. Once it had been signed and printed, there was plenty of organizational labor involved in the assembling of the procession, the hiring of loudspeakers, and the synchronization of the petition uh, giving with the, with the district magistrates' movements. Compare this involved process with the WhatsApp RZs, with the WhatsApp petition, when one young man in the village just sent it out within an hour of the death. Again, with the Gopeshwar petition, the district magistrate had called an emergency meeting that lasted for hours. There were letters, there were telegrams, there were phone calls, a committee was set up. Um, the hunting license in that case was eventually won, but the entire process took a long time, despite the state being in, as the district magistrate put it, an emergency mode. With the WhatsApp RC, the WhatsApp petition, uh, the officials met the very next morning and uh, they sent an SMS of a hunting license before lunchtime. Now, speedy as they might be, petitions and orders sent on phones have the capacity to vanish with greater ease than paper petitions or orders. While there are several cases of paper petitions being torn up or binned, uh, what I call the forgotten letters of the Indian state, in general, the norm is for them to be filed away. Also, canny petitioners know to send multiple copies of the same arzi, or the same petition to different offices and also follow up with the original with frequent reminders till the demands are made, uh, till the demands are met. The very system of government is such that even if nobody reads the petition, there is a very particular system of filing and archiving that allows for it to be archived or to remain on as a trace within state spaces in some way. Furthermore, often petitioners know that in return of the application or demand or grievance, they should be given a material receipt documenting its submission. Um, in contrast, a WhatsApp or SMS message does not leave a trace in the same way. A text message is easily deleted. A WhatsApp message is heavily encrypted. And while it might remain on with the sender, the receiver can delete it. 
Even if the message goes viral, there's no way of making it an official submission or to verify that the said official did act upon the petition. In contrast to emails that can be and almost always are printed out, scribbled upon, signed, stamped and filed away just like a regular petition, WhatsApp and SMS messages are a relatively more ephemeral medium. This ephemeral nature stems not so much from the medium, but more from the fact that thus far they are not routinely included into the presence of quoted in government in India in the same way as documents and files are. I should say that there is a whole move going on now to actually say find ways in which you can make an SMS or a WhatsApp message an official submission and something that actually then becomes part of the everyday functioning of government, but at the moment that has not happened. While phone recordings and spy cameras have been utilized in very high-profile media exposés in India more recently, these are very exceptional moments. In general and so far, messages sent on smartphones as well as telephone calls do largely remain off record. Now, this ephemeral quality does not, however, prevent them, especially the WhatsApp petition, from being a powerful medium of communication. Um, having said that, WhatsApp is, is, making, is being used a lot, but it remains a very urban phenomenon. Now, what form it will take in the future remains open to speculation. At the, vast, at, at the moment, the vast majority of petitions remain the old ones of writing down one's travails on pieces of paper. I'm going to end uh, this, this paper, though, with uh, the case of a long-term petitioner who carried her appeal, so to say, on her very self. The petition of this woman, who I'm going to call Uma, related to the sudden disappearance of her 20-year-old son from a town in Uttarakhand. The reason for this vanishing, for his vanishing, remains unclear to date. Some suspected he had run away from home and the Himalayas to make a life for himself in urban India in the plains, uh, which is a very common phenomenon here. Others wondered if he hadn't met with some accidents, such as falling down a cliff or, in, or into the river Ganges, or again, a not uncommon occurrence had been killed and eaten up by a big cat. Now, Omar recited her story as one whereby she woke up one day and everything was normal in her life. Her son had breakfast, he took his lunchbox and headed off to work, but, he, but then he never returned. She had just one photograph of her son, this was a passport-sized one that has been used uh, for his college ID card, that she attached to a, to a petition that she got written by a professional petition writer nine years ago when he disappeared. That petition went into a very, very fat file of missing persons in the district office as well as with the police. Um, so. On the first Tuesday of every month, Uma would, without fail, visit the district magistrate's office um, where I too had been, was working. On one of these days, I was sitting in his office as well, waiting to speak to him alongside another six, seven people. The other six held documents, some forms of petitions or forms in their hands, but Uma walked in without one, merely with her hands folded in supplication. When her, when her turn came, she remained absolutely mute. The district magistrate was obviously familiar with her and he very quickly but not unkindly dismissed her by saying, yeah, we'll look at your arzi, we'll look at your petition uh, again and do what we can. Uh, I followed her out to another room where a cl clerical officer who again immediately recognized her and automatically took out a thick file. Um, from this he extracted her original petition, made two photocopies of it. He gave her one and he marked the other uh, to the police department with today's date, with that day's date, and a scribble note that read, please see. Omar took the copy that was given to her uh, to a Hanuman temple. So Hanuman is the Hindu monkey god. Uh, and this temple was located just outside in the office compound. In the temple, she muttered a small prayer under her breath and deposited the petition near the main shrine. Now this ritual was repeated every first Tuesday of the month for the year that I spent in the district. 
even when the dm uh, when the district magistrate was transferred and a new one came in he was prepped about the sorry plight of uma who yearned to be re- reunited with her missing son now uma knew that her petition in the hanuman temple like the many others that were deposited there alongside hers was swept away by the cleaner the next morning and put in the garbage bin yet she persisted in doing so uh, day after day month after month while her repeat uh, and she did this on tuesday i should say because that's the designated day for the hindu god hanuman now while her repeat performances her repeat appearances in the offices were not uh, were very familiar this is what is called classic chakramana coming going round and round coming again and again making the same petition again and again submitting it there i was very curious about the additional trip to the temple when i asked her about it one time she shrugged her shoulders and she said to me who knows uh, you know one never knows who might hear you where now the practice of depositing bureaucratic petitions in shrines or temples especially those located close to government offices is not an uncommon practice so in fact in uttarakhand there's a very famous temple to the god of justice called golu that is devoted almost entirely to the submission of official petitions so this is it um and as you can see uh, the whole temple just has on the bells these petitions are strung and they're all on stamp paper so like official government paper um and it's a really really common practice to just go to this particular temple in this district and uh, submit your petitions uh, as malik has argued there's a very public intimacy that is created through the sharing of these extremely personal testimonials alongside an open expression of faith in uh, the god of justice golu in november 2015 the new york times carried a story on what that particular journalist considered a very peculiar petitioning practice uh this was a story on um the site was new delhi uh, uh sorry old delhi uh, this is the ruins of a 14th century fort called Fero- uh, called ferosha kotla fort built by the sultan ferosha tughlaq in delhi uh, in the 14th century now in this court uh, sorry in this um uh in the in the castle i think is that what you call in the fort rather uh you still have this practice of submitting petitions uh, but the petitions are submitted to a jinn um these this jinn is believed to live in the ruined fort now drawing on the work of a particular anthropologist this um on of anand vivek taneja this piece in the new york times noted in very amused and amazed tones that the petitioners are more bureaucratic than worshipful they include um police reports detailed contact information and multiple photocopies of the very same form as if the new york times article noted addressed to different departments of a modern bureaucracy So by way of a petition like conclusion my submission is that an ethnographic account of petitions allows us to drop the incredulous tones of the New York Times article variety by expanding our imagination of what it means to make an appeal and relatedly what forms an appeal can take petitions challenge dichotomies they do not allow for the maintenance of uncont- uncontaminated pure spaces where for instance the legal is kept safely distinct from the sacred or the bureaucratic from the poetic the question the assumption of a separation between the sacred for instance a hanuman temple uh, and uh, the profane a clerical office or the difference between a language that is bureaucratic and legal and a language that is worshipful or similarly documents that are bureaucratic or deeply affective a petition can have long details on which clauses of which statute need to be amended in what manner even as it simultaneously offers musings on the meaning of life and pontificates on the inevitability of death just as petitions can be presented to a state official so too they can be handed over to jins or simply strung up onto temple bells equally 
Petitions work through notions of the darbar or a royal court, through the hope of a darshan of an official, a viewing that holds connotations of the sacred, into much more of the moment institutions like a grievance redressal cell or email IDs and phone numbers where you can offer suggestions or WhatsApp your appeal using photographs and emoticons. As far as documents found in bureaucracies and state archives go, petitions are uniquely genre-defying. They carry elements of the humble petition, snatches of the worshipful, but just as much they can be combative, angry, and even threatening. In the same breath, we go from, quote, again, I'm quoting from a particular petition, you're my mother, father, but what is it that you've done? And again, quote, I submit to thee, my humble Lord, but be warned, the submission is not absolute, and I too can roar like a hungry tiger, end of quote. Another petition that was furious uh, and threatened a bloody revolt ma manned by Maoists shipped in from neighboring Nepal, uh, signed off, again, quote, but I shall forever remain your humble servant. Now, I want to suggest that these are not confused or contradictory petition writers, but rather that ambivalence is written into the very heart of contemporary petitions that, in the quest for justice, find themselves battling big cats and the legal and bureaucratic apparatus of the Indian state. Humans in these petitions appear in a particularly, uh, in a peculiarly vulnerable position, especially vis-a-vis -vis the charismatic non-human animal. The big cats, on the other hand, come across as powerfully agentive in his own right, an agency that is further bolstered by the bureaucratic and legal regime that has been set up to protect them. In the demands to kill the big cats, power and the right to life are flipped around. It is the big cat that is valued more than humans, claim the latter, even though it should, by all rights, be the obverse. Not just then do petitions defy a neat genre or encapsulation within a space, medium, or series of petitioning processes, practices, they can also serve to open up debates on peaceful multi-species coexistence and challenge a conservationist discourse that assumes big cats to be peculiarly agentless and in dire need of human protection. In the, in the petitions described above, uh, described here, it is the human who deserves protection from the beast, be it from even citing him or from his being made his prey. Finally, what are the efficacious petitions that I've discussed here? A very common grumble with the Indian state is that either it never listens to its petition, uh, people who come and petition it, or that it only listens to the voices or demands of a very small elite. A closer look at the efficacious appeals against big cats suggests a more complicated scenario. Theatrics at the point of submission, ingenious chakarmarna or follow-up action, things like piggyback or WhatsApp petitions, threats of violence, canny lobbying, the very visceral response to visuals or words, and sometimes, the sheer aching vulnerability of the petitioner can, and indeed have, elicited responses. Now, while there are very real elements of serendipity involved, uh, as Uma puts it, who knows who might hear you where, there is a greater complexity to petitions that, while not defying an easy narrative of privilege and patronage, do at least illuminate other modalities of engaging the state. Thank you.